All right, turn back there to Hebrews chapter number 12. Hebrews chapter number 12. Let me read in your hearing once more, beginning at verse number 2. We'll look at verses 2 and 3 as we finish up. Last time I was in the pulpit here, we began there with verse number 1, and we'll continue on in verses 2 and 3. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, these are the words of God. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him that endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Thus far we've considered here in verse number 1 the great race that God calls His people to run. And let me remind you that this is not a physical race, but it is a spiritual race, and it is a race that calls for sanctified endurance. All believers are called to run this race. There is no exemptions. And we must have the perseverant, staying power of endurance in order to run this race and not buckle under the pressure. And now as we turn our attention to verses 2 and 3, we saw already the exhortation where the writer says to us, let us run, let us run, and now we're going to see the great encouragement. We can be thankful tonight that our Lord is not a despotic taskmaster. Uh, that God is not in the heavens barking down commands for us to follow. Uh, he is not cracking the whip. But He is beckoning with love. And when our God bids us to undertake a task, He does so from the position of a heavenly Father that wants to see His children flourish and succeed. And so in verses 2 and 3, He gives us this grand encouragement for the spiritual race that He's called us to run. You'll understand that our God is a God who knows our frames and understands our frailties. He understands how daunting such a call to service can be to mortal man. Remember there when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And God said, Moses, you are going to go into Pharaoh's court and you, Moses, are going to prophesy to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was arguably the most powerful man in the entire world. And Moses said, Lord, who am I that I should do this? He, he was giving reasons as to why he couldn't do it. Lord, I, I, I'm not strong in speech. Lord, I'm not eloquent. Lord, I'm not smart enough. And a, a lot of people, they like to beat up on Moses. And I like to say that, well, Moses was just doubting God's call upon his life. I think we ought to be a little bit more generous to Moses. I think Moses just understood the, the weight and the gravity of what God was calling him to do. I hope all of you understand that that same weight is upon your shoulders as his child. He's bidding you to do a work for him. It's a very serious thing. But on the flip side of that, we find that God provides us 
with all that is necessary to serve Him. In verse number 1, God gave us instructions on how to prepare ourselves. And we saw that we need to lay aside the sins which beset us, the weights which encumber us, and we need to run with patience. And now, in verse number 2 and 3, it's as if God is providing the fuel supply that we need so that we can run and not slow down. See, many Christians are engaged in a multitude of endeavors that God has never bidden them to undertake. And they waste their resources, running in circles, heading absolutely nowhere. So we need to understand that God is calling us to run a race, and God is the one that has established all of the mile markers, the beginning line, the finish line, and He's the one that has set the race before us. We must prepare ourselves by understanding the gravity of the task to which we've been called. So that when the starting pistol is fired, and believer, the starting pistol was fired the moment that you placed your faith in Christ, you need to ever have your nose pointed in the right direction. And the key to running a profitable race for God is so profound, yet so simple. And it's surmised in but a few words at the beginning of verse number 2. What must you do in order to run a race for the Lord Jesus Christ? What must you do to live a life in service to God? Verse number 2, looking unto Jesus. Amen. For the entirety of the Christian race, you are to have your eyes fixated upon captured with and enamored by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us remember that verse number 1 comes before verse number 2. And we see Paul is setting up an argument here. He's told us what we must not do. That is, get rid of the sins and get rid of the baggage and get rid of the weights. Now he's telling us what we must do. See, the weeds must be uprooted before the seeds are planted or the farmer's work will come to naught. And there must be a turning from the world and a turning from the things that hinder you and a turning from the encumbrances upon your life before you can turn towards Christ. You must first repent before you can believe. And so here we see that the Bible declares the order in which we are to prepare ourselves. This is again is an athletic metaphor. We're runners in this spiritual race. And just like an athlete must train and prepare to be successful, no one shows up at the Olympics by happenstance. So too, you will not be a profitable servant in the kingdom of Christ if you're not daily training, working, and grinding to be who He would have you to be. This passage presents the full-orbed call of the gospel because the gospel produces in its recipient a radical transformation and a dramatic recreation. Nothing that comes in contact with the gospel of Christ remains the same. The gospel is a call to come and die. Die to self. Die to worldly endeavors. Die to personal pursuits. And live 
in Christ. Live in Him. The key to the Christian life is not a self-help book. It's not a 12-step plan. But the key to the Christian life is looking unto Jesus Christ. The call of God upon your life is simply that you would look upon His Son. That you would turn your eyes away from all things and look unto Him. And don't look at others who are likewise running the race. And don't compare yourself to the person sitting on the pew next to you. But compare yourself to the Son of God. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus who never fails. Look to Jesus who never disappoints. Look to Jesus who always gives to His children what they need. Look to Jesus who always keeps His promises. Look to Jesus who is all-sufficient. Look to Jesus that contains everything within Himself. And from that abundance, He gives unto us freely by His grace. This is who we're called to look unto. And the writer then goes on to detail what it is that we see when we look unto Him. What specifically we are to take note of in looking unto Jesus. And I want to give you a number of things. So buckle in. The first thing we see when looking unto Jesus is we see the completion. The completion. Look at it in verse number 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now there's a twofold meaning here. Yes, it's true that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith in the sense that He is the preeminent Son of God. That faith is a gift that He bestows to us. It is not something that we produce in and of ourselves, but it's a product of Him working within us. And yes, He's the author and finisher of our faith in that He gives it to us. But I believe that the meaning here intended primarily by the Apostle is the fact that Jesus is not only the ultimate object of our faith and the source of our faith, but He is the supreme example of our faith. No one lived a more faithful life than the Lord Jesus Christ. For 33 and a half years, Christ lived upon this earth with faith in His Father. And it was a perfect faith. It was a faith that never wavered. It was a faith that fully trusted in God. He said, I do always those things which please the Father. And then He said, I do, my, my meat is to do the will of Him that sent me. He ran the race of faith. And Jesus is the embodiment of faithfulness. He is the supreme example of what a faith-filled life looks like. In, in verse number 1, we talked about the great cloud of witnesses. And we talked about all of those saints that picture for us faithfulness. But the apostle is very careful to, to, mention the, to mention Christ as an example in a completely different verse. Because He is so above and beyond. He is so supreme. He is so transcendent. He is so other than and removed from. He's too worthy to even be included in a list of mere men. There are many men in the Scriptures, many men in your own lives, women in your own lives that have exemplified faithfulness. But they all had their own failings. They all had their own sins. But it's not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfectly 
faithful. Perfectly faithful. No man lived like Jesus lived. And so not only is He the one in whom our faith should be in, but He is the one whom our faith should be modeled after. Because from Bethlehem to Calvary, Jesus enjoyed an unbroken communion with His Father that was characterized by perseverant, enduring, and substantial faith. No one faced more obstacles to their faith than Jesus did. Friends turned their backs on Him. Family forsook Him. When the shepherd was stricken, the sheep scattered. But His faith carried Him through. He was despised of His peers. He was dejected by the government. He was outcasted by the religious elite. Yet He remained faithful. And that is the true sign of God-given faith. As we said two weeks ago, if God gives you faith, no man can take it from you. If your faith can be removed by the actions and the words and the, the doings of men, then your faith was not from God. The faith that Christ had was not dependent on the world around Him, but it was secured and settled in His heart and in His life, and it carried Him all the way throughout His personal ministry. It carried Him all the way to a hill called Calvary, where He willingly marched to a rugged cross, and on that cross, He ran His race of faith, and He burst through the finish line, and He said, It is finished. A perfected life of faith. The world has never seen a more powerful demonstration of faithfulness than Jesus Christ. Like Christ, we have our race set before Him. You realize Christ's course was fixed. He came for an intended purpose. He knew His destiny. Nothing took Him by chance. Nothing surprised the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing that Christ endured came to Him without His omniscience already foreseeing it. And yet He ran that wonderful race of faith. We see the completion of faith in Christ upon the cross. Second thing we see in this text is the compensation. The compensation. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, watch this, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. See, Jesus finished the race of faith and His finish line. Understand this, Christian. His finish line was not fame. His finish line was not popularity. His finish line was not wealth, health, or prosperity. His finish line was a cross whereupon He was crucified and killed. And you ask, what was it that motivated our Lord to run such a race? What was it that propelled Him not to slow down, not to stop, not to give up, but to continue? We see the compensation in verse number 2. It was the joy that was set before Him. What was this joy what was it that, that so motivated our Lord? We understand that at the finish line hung the divine crown which was ever before the eyes of the captain of our salvation. There can be no cross, or there can be no crown without a cross. 
And if Jesus is to be Lord of all, if Jesus is to be King over all the earth, He first must have purchased that kingdom with His own blood. And at the end of His life, at the end of His race of faith, what propelled Him to go was knowing the everlasting joy that awaited Him. On the other side of that cross was a resurrection. And on the other side of that resurrection was an ascension. And there, the Lord Jesus in the courts of heaven foresaw all of His people, an innumerable host of saints that would worship Him throughout the ceaseless ages. Friend, He saw you, and He saw me, and He saw all of those who would come to believe in Him, and He knew that His death would achieve all that it had set out to accomplish. And they are considering that host of people from every tribe and every kindred and every nation and every tongue worshiping Him and having fellowship with Him and having communion with Him and the Father. He gladly went to the cross. It was that joy that was set before Him. There's a song that we sing that it will be worth it all when we see Christ. And I don't mean this in any kind of man-centered way. I don't mean any, this in any kind of uh, deifying man way. But it was as if Christ, when going to the cross, thought to Himself, it will be worth it all when I see my people with me for all eternity. And He died knowing that His death would accomplish the reconciliation of those He came to to save. What a gospel. In Isaiah 53 and verse 11, the Bible says that he shall see of the travail of his soul and he shall be satisfied. This was the joy that was set before him. That though his sufferings, though they were harsh and though they were fierce, he knew that the Father would be glorified and he knew that his people would be redeemed. And while enduring such reproach as a man of sorrows, he kept this blissful reward ever before him, cheering him on. And he knew that his earthly life would last but for a moment, but heavenly joy would be everlasting. What a truth to consider as we run the race of faith. As we experience obstacles, as we experience things that encumber us and things that hinder us, we can remember why He died, the end, the purpose, the plan, perfected and accomplished in His death. And we can know that awaiting us is communion with Him. And that makes all the things we experience in this life seem so petty and so small. It will be worth it all when we see Christ. That's the compensation. But thirdly, I want you to see the condemnation. The condemnation. Pay close attention to this phrase, who for the joy that was set before him, watch this word, endured the cross. Endured the cross. What have we been talking about this week, two weeks ago, this spiritual grace of endurance. And this same joy, and this same divine certitude of his compensation propelled our Savior 
to endure the cross. Notice the Bible does not say that he experienced the cross or that he suffered the cross or that he felt the pain of the cross or that he was at the cross, but he endured the cross. Speaks of victory. Speaks of overcoming. Speaks of triumph. Even as he hung, smitten and afflicted by men, our sovereign Lord remained steadfast through it all. Nothing could break his spirit. Nothing could dissuade him from accomplishing that which he had set to do. He never faltered. He never wavered. He never murmured and he never complained. He endured it. We preach on the seven sayings of the cross. Those precious words spoken by our Lord upon Calvary. Not one of them was a slander. Not one of them was a backbite. He never returned kind for kind. Even when he was mocked and humiliated before Pilate, and when Pilate said, do you say you're the Son of God? Our Lord could have stood up and he could have said, of course I'm the Son of God, you dummy. But in meekness and humility, he just said, thou sayest. There on the cross, as the thieves mocked and railed against him, as they cast the same at his teeth, as the Bible says. He saved others himself he cannot save. They were right. He could have saved himself. But you understand, it was not the nails that held our Lord to the cross. It was not the Romans that kept him crucified. No, what kept our Lord on the cross was his own endurance, his own determination to finish the work that he'd been given of the Father. And Christ again asserts himself as the ultimate example of all who will follow after him. What does he say to us? He says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And you might think, what a, what a harsh command. I could never do that. And he would say, well, I did it. It would be harsh if he was bidding us to do something that he himself did not do. It's the way it goes. I, in, the job, in the job site, in school, you have teachers, you have bosses, managers that are all the time asking you to do things they would never do. That's why you're the employee and they're the employer. But Christ bids us to follow Him, to do what He did, live as He lived, spake as He spake, and as He took up His cross, so we who are His disciples are to take up ours. You are to put your shoes in His shoe lever. You are to walk a mile in His steps. You are to follow Him. This is the condemnation. Condemned on the cross. Oh, but friend, he endured the cross. Endured the cross. Notice also the condescension. The Bible says he endured the cross, despising the shame. I love this phrase. 
despising the shame. It doesn't mean that our Lord was just indignant or angry or somehow personally offended and emotionally hurt because of the shame. But it's that He had a contempt for whatever stood to hinder Him from accomplishing the work that He set out to do. When when Peter said, Lord, you're not going to be crucified. I'm not going to let you go to the cross. He despised that. Now Peter, he meant well. He loved his Lord and he didn't want to see Him crucified. But Christ knew, in His omniscience, Christ knew that Peter, though had good intentions, though he was sincere, he was sincerely wrong. And Christ despised anything that would have hindered him from completing the work that God had given him to do. He gave no mind to the scorners. He paid no attention to the blasphemers. He did not regard hardship or persecution. But he walked with meekness. And he understood his position. He knew who he was. Do you see this example that he is setting for you? You're called to follow Christ in a world that hates Him. You're called to be a disciple of Jesus in a world that wants nothing to do with Him. The natural man cannot stand our Lord. And He is the one who you are called to be like. Do you think that you will experience some of this same derision, some of this same shame, some of this same hatred? Jesus promised it. He said, marvel not when the world hates you, for it hated me first. And how are we to respond? How how are we to respond? Are we to rail back? Are we to scream back? Are we to curse back? Are we to follow our Lord and the example of His meekness and humble meekness? and compassionate love, and brokenness, understanding who we are in Christ. Understand who you are in Christ. The Bible says, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? Those who have been counted as just in the courtroom of heaven, have no earthly charge that can be laid against them. Understand that Christ and His disciples were not crucified. They were not crucified for anything that they were actually doing. Why did they crucify Jesus? They didn't crucify Jesus because... He established a church and He met with His disciples and He baptized them and they fellowshiped around the doctrine that He... You know, they they crucified Him because they accused Him of being a blasphemer. They accused Him of being an insurrectionist, being a nonconformist, being a dissenter to the world. You are called to be a dissenter to the world. You are called to dissent in, in the civil realm. In the religious elitist realm, you are called to be other than. And the world will hate you for it. Light came into the world. John chapter number 3. Light came into the world. 
And men hated the light. They loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And and this is the same world that that, that you are in, that, that we are in. It's the world that our Lord came into. And if you think that the natural man has any more inclination towards the gospel now than he did then, you're mistaken. I believe in the victory of the gospel. I believe in the triumph of Christ's church. I believe in the victory of our Lord and the coming of His kingdom. But that doesn't mean that I somehow think that total depravity changes from 2,000 years ago to today. The hearts of men are the same. And it takes the same grace. It takes the same meekness. It takes the same efficacy of the gospel in this world to change the hearts of men. And so we are to despise the shame. When the world rails against us for following our Lord, we're not to despise them or to love them, but we must stand adamantly against anything that would hinder us from serving Christ as He has called us to do. And I know that there are many who've made sacrifices, who've been at odds with the world to to follow God in the way that He has bid them to do. And I want to encourage you to look unto Jesus. And to understand that God always blesses obedience to Him. To his word. Despise the shame. Follow Christ. Emulate him. See the condescension. We see his contempt for the things that hinder him. When the world tells you that you're wasting your life serving Christ, When the world says, don't you know how much more money you could be making? How many more friends you could have? How much more worldly success you could attain for yourself? How much more pleasure you could find in the things of the world? Young men, don't you know that there are so many more things you could be doing on a Sunday evening than wasting away your evening in church? But you'll hear these things. You do hear these things. I know you do. Guess what? So did Christ. So did Christ. I wonder how many times someone said to him, if you just keep your mouth shut, they wouldn't hate you. Hey, if you just play their game, they, they wouldn't despise you. If you would just try to just go along with those Pharisees, but for a moment, Jesus, they wouldn't crucify you. Jesus knew to do that would be to disobey his heavenly Father. For him, it's not an option. We must emulate this. I want you to see, fifthly, the coronation. Look at this glorious thought. Despising the shame, end of verse 2, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, as you look unto Jesus... 
as you consider Him, not only are you to look unto Him as He was when He walked this earth, when He lived the way He lived for those 33 and a half years, but you are to look on to Him as He is now in the present state of His glorified exaltation. You need to look at Christ with one eye on Him as He lived in His earthly life and one eye on Him as He is in His radiant deity. See, His, his dis- despising the shame, His enduring the cross, His authoring and finishing our faith, none of that was for naught. Never forget His work on the cross, friend, but understand that it's a finished work. It's a finished work. He's not on the cross any longer. He's been crucified, and by the once offering Himself, He perfected all those who come unto God by Him. Hebrews 7. He ran His race. He crossed the finish line. And like a champion, He sat down. You understand that? He sat down. And this sitting denotes the completion of everything he came to do. And not only is he sitting down, but he's sitting down on the right hand of the throne of God. Speaks to his being co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. He sits on a throne where he rules and reigns. And it is a fixed, immutable, and immovable throne. And it's a throne that one day all of us will stand before. Sinner and saint alike, we will all stand before this throne. And believer, you will have to give an account for the race that you're running. You will have to look into the eyes of the one who ran the race perfectly, who never faltered to one side or the other. You will have to give an account to him. And sinner, you will have to give an account as to why you forsook His service. So when your race becomes exhausting, when your race becomes hard-pressed, you need to see the joy set before you. And you need to endure your cross. And you need to uh, despise your shame. And you need to look unto Jesus who is seated on the right hand of the Father. Verse number three, the consideration. Paul is, I believe it's Paul who wrote Hebrews. I know that's not scholarly to say, but the apostle, I believe it's Paul. Paul says to us in verse three, for consider him. And this directive carries with it not just the idea of merely looking. He's already told us to do that. But it's to carefully take into account, to meticulously analyze. He is telling you to make Christ your major in the school of discipleship. Consider Him. Analyze Him. Notice everything about Him. Study Christ. Learn of Christ. Look unto Him with a clear 20-20 vision. Give Him your supreme consideration. Consider the excellencies of His person and His work, and take into account His person above all things. And it's a study that, friends, you will never exhaust. You will never get to the bottom of this well. But you will spend your whole life learning of Him, becoming more and more like Him. What a glorious thought that is. 
Do you wake up each morning thinking that if, if you're truly trusting the promises of God, you will go to bed tonight more like Christ than you were when you woke up this morning? You don't realize that that's taking place in the moment. Just like you don't realize your hair is growing, but it is. But God who sits above all, who sees from a vantage point that we cannot look from, He sees the work that He's doing in your heart. He sees the sanctification that He's causing within you, the conforming you unto Christ. And we must consider Him as we conform unto who He is. 1 Peter 2 and verse 21, Christ also suffered, leaving us an example that ye should follow His steps. John 13, 15, For I, this is Christ speaking, have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. This is the apex of our study. This is the pinnacle of this passage. This is the summit of this mountain peak that we would consider Him. Consider Him. We don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus and Him crucified, Paul says. And the central objective of the author is that we would consider Jesus so that we might live as He lived. And failure to consider Him will result in a failure to run with endurance. Every sin, every pitfall, every trap that you get into is a result of not properly considering Christ. Mark it down. Every error that you commit, every sin is a result of not looking unto Christ. Well, if that's true, then the Bible then gives us the mandate for perfection. All you have to do is be like Jesus in every way. <laughs> well, if you know anything about Him, you know that you'll never do that and you've never done that. But by the Spirit of God, you are doing it more and more and there's coming a day. John says... We shall be like Him. He shall appear, for we shall see Him as He is. The consideration, the contradiction, for consider Him, that, here's this word again, He endured. So we, we, we've covered this. He's not just experiencing or suffering, but He's enduring. He's triumphantly overcoming such contradiction of sinners against Himself. Jesus is worthy to be considered He's run his race. He's accomplished his work. And he's endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. During his earthly ministry, Jesus Christ was constantly opposed. As a baby, his opposition began when there was no room for him in the inn. As a child, he was opposed by Herod's decree to kill all male children under the age of two. He was opposed by the Jews who hated him and blasphemed him. He was opposed by the Roman government who executed him on Calvary's cross. It was no small amount of contradiction, but the Bible says he endured such contradiction. But it doesn't stop there. I want you to get the weight of this. I don't think any of us will fully understand the weight of what he's saying here. He endured such contradiction. And look who the contradictors were. Who was contradicting him? The contradiction of sinners. I think we have a tendency to read over that and not really stop and meditate upon it. We're talking 
about the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of the living God, Jesus Christ in the flesh, perfectly holy, perfectly spotless, altogether lovely. And he was contradicted by meagerly, blasphemous, wretched, vile sinners. The world's never known such reproach. What right do do you really have to be offended at what other men say to you? Yes, men will revile us and men will mock us and we want to puff ourselves up like we're somebody. What right do they have to talk to me like that? We don't know anything about being contradicted. There's another truth here. The only way that the Son of God could be contradicted of sinners is if He humbled Himself and allowed such contradiction to take place. Do you understand that? He left the splendors of heaven. Of His own will came to earth and humbled Himself and allowed these sinners to contradict Him. Think of all that our Lord endured for you, for your sake, for those who come to receive life from Him. Our Lord Jesus, the King of glory, endured contradiction of sinners against Himself, and He hung on the cross, and He was despised, and He was rejected, and He was crucified, and as He hung His head in death, listen, as He hung His head in death, the world thought that they had just won the victory. The Jews thought we've silenced this dissenter. The Romans thought we've crucified this insurrectionist. The, the, the world of sinful men thought we finally got rid of this righteous man that convicts us day after day. They thought they had finally won the victory, but little did they know that in His death, Christ was the one who was victorious. He did not hang on the cross as a victim, but as a victor. And on the cross, He won the ultimate victory over death, over the grave, over sin, over Satan, over the dejectors, over the despisers. And He now holds the crown rights to all eternity, friend. He accomplished that in His death. Consider the cross. Consider what happened on Calvary. You've only scratched the surface. You might think you know the cross. You've only scratched the surface. We haven't begun to wade into the depths of the truth of our Lord Jesus. This is who He is. It's who He is. And we must consider Him, lastly, the continuation of lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. This is why we must consider Him. Let these words just leap off the page. If if you are wearied, if you are here tonight discouraged, if you are here tonight downtrodden, if you are here tonight vexed in your heart, if you are depressed, if you feel opposed, if you feel disgruntled, if you are at odds with other believers, if you are struggling with besetting sin, you must consider Him lest ye be wearied and faint 
in your minds. And that this phrase to faint in your mind, it really just kind of speaks to just breaking down, just giving up, just imploding upon yourself. You think you can do it, but you can't. You think you can make it on your own, but you can't. You can't serve God on your own. You can't live for Christ in the power of your own flesh. You can't love your wife on your own. You can't love your husband on your own. You can't lead your family on your own. You can't come to church on your own. You can't study on your own. You can't work on your own. You can't do anything on your own. Just try it. And you'll be weary and you'll faint in your mind. And you'll remember, why didn't I just look unto him? Why, why was I so stubborn as to think that I could figure out a way to do it? Well, why didn't I just repent of my sin and quit trying to figure it all out? Because he's already done it. And I could just look to him. And not only just look to him, but he's given me all the grace I need. What do you have in yourself to offer up to him? You think you're going to justify yourself? <laughs> think you're going to present your good works? You think Christ is going to roll out a red carpet for you to stroll into the gates of heaven so you can say, look what I've done? Clothe yourself in his righteousness. Consider him. Emulate him. Love him. Worship him. Serve him. He'll give you the endurance run the race of faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you in Jesus' name for the privilege to stand with the open word of God to meditate upon the Lord Jesus. He's so precious. He's so lovely. He's done it. He's done it all. There's nothing that I need. There's nothing that any of us needs Outside of Him, we must only serve Him and love Him and strive to be like Him. Father, we love You. We praise You. Help us to trust You more and more. Help us to relinquish our reliance on our own selves to turn and believe in You. We love You because You first loved us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.